since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Now, I don't know about you guys, but maybe you've heard, heard the saying that goes that, you know, when, when speaking about somebody, and it's not typically a compliment, right? That, but you might have heard maybe sometime that uh, someone is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Has anybody ever heard that saying? Okay, so a few of us, a few of us have heard that, right? And it's, you know, it's not exactly a compliment, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's fairly derogatory. I mean, it's a person is useless, right? They spend all their time, like, you know, doing all these things, you know, thinking of spiritual things. They're no earthly good, okay? Here's what I'm going to propose to you today. I don't really think that's going to be any of our problem. I don't think any of us are going to struggle with that. And I'm not sure that too many people really struggle. You know, maybe somebody living in a monastery somewhere could struggle with that, I suppose. Sure. Okay. Um, but even there, they might be making some delicious jam or some, you know, you know what does it monks make? Beer. You know, it's the nuns who make the jam and the chocolate. Right? So, so even there, there's some earthly good there. Right? Okay. Um, but but here's, here's what I'm saying. I don't think that's going to be our struggle. To be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Instead... I think actually the opposite is true. I think probably for most of us, we are going to struggle with being so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. (laughs) And I think Paul addresses that here. He else tells us actually to fix our eyes, to set our eyes, right? He says, set your sights on the realities of heaven. And this morning, we're going to talk about why Paul might say something like that. Is, is it so that we'll all ret- retreat into, uh, you know, Alta Kyle Morabi and make jam and chocolate? No. Instead, because when we set our sights on heaven, it puts our focus onto Jesus and who he is and the kingdom he has brought and will bring. So there you go. Now you can fall asleep. You've heard the sermon. Uh, no, we're going we're gonna to unpack that. Because I think we live in a world that is so distracting, that is so set on keeping us from focusing on the things that are really important. So, trying to, so focused on keeping us at un, in, in a, some level of discontent, some level of unease, some level of distraction, that we don't actually have time to think about the things that really matter. Right? Whether we like it or not... We're living in a world that is, in some ways, a marketplace that constantly competes for our allegiance, that constantly competes for us because it wants to use us. It's not selling us necessarily a product, but our world sells us a way of life. And I think this is important to recognize that when Paul talks about setting our sights on heaven, it is about a way of life. It is not just about setting our sights on some esoteric place up in the sky, right? It is setting our sights on a person and on a way of life 
that brings life. This is what Paul is getting at because there is competing visions in this world for what constitutes real life. And we are so tempted to set our sights on other things. And these competing visions... I think we could really put them in ways where, in, in, in similar sort of religious terms, even though they may not seem religious, because they are visions of, you know, of, of things that bring salvation in a way. All right? And you think, he's crazy, he's gone completely mad. But I've used this in the past, and what about the term retail therapy? Right? I think we've all probably heard that at some point. Right? So... Therapy assumes it's a, it's a way of making us feel better or bringing us out of, you know, our, our disappointment or, you know, whatever. So I'm having a bad day, so what do I do? What's going to make me better? I go shopping. So right there, there is a vision of something that will bring me the salvation that I long for to pull me out of the deep, dark pit that I'm in and make me feel better. And it's, you know, it's going to Harvey Norman and buying that new tablet or it's, it's going to, you know, to... Well, I'm not going to say where I shop. Okay, we'll just leave it. Wherever it is that you go, um, you know, uh, we'll leave it ambiguous where my clothes come from. Um, not that any of you really would want to know anyway. Right? So there's, there's a Polish philosopher, okay? A Polish sociologist and philosopher. And you know you can trust him because his name is Zygmunt Bauman. And if you can't trust a guy named Zygmunt Bauman, then who can you trust, right? Okay, so he, he says that we live in a society of consumers, that the society of consumers is perhaps the only society in human history to promise happiness in earthly life. And happiness here and now, and in every successive now. In short, he says, it, is in, it promises instant and perpetual happiness. See what I'm saying? This is the vision that we compete with. A vision that promises perpetual and continual happiness in the now. But here's the problem with that. We actually live life and we know that that's not really possible. And we live in this conflicted sort of, I know that's not possible, yet I chase it anyway. Yet I go after it anyway. And so I think it's one of those where really we are, and I think Paul recognizes this, because even this, something like this was true, I think, for the people living in, in Colossae. There was a marketplace of ideas there, temples everywhere, all these things competing for their allegiance as Christians. And I think one of the things that Paul recognizes and we need to recognize is that you and I are literally in a fight for our lives. And now, when you say... When you say that, it can sound kind of ridiculous. Like, right? Am I really in a fight for my life if I'm tempted to, you know, to go to Next or Duns or, you know, whatever and buy something to feel better? It sounds silly at first, but the answer is yes. <laughs> because when we rely on those things for feelings of salvation or feelings of security or feelings that all of those things competing for our desires and our imaginations and our longings and our wallets... We're constantly reminded then of how happy we would be if we only had X, Y, or Z, or Z, depending on whether you're American or, or not. The problem is, is that we live in a world of grand promises, in a world of grand promises that cannot be fulfilled. And I think this is creating a level of anxiety in our world. 
what some are starting to coin, <laughs> that saying that we live in what, what, what some are coining a gray zone, a world where, where now because of empty promises, we're in this moment of going, that doesn't work, but what does? And so we're still stuck chasing all of the old ways, trying to make those things fit, yet living in this reality of knowing it doesn't actually work. And so we're in this time of flux, and maybe you feel that. Maybe you experience that, that feeling of anxiety that says, I actually don't know what the right thing to do is. I don't know the right way to go. I, don't, like, I feel just confused. I feel like overwhelmed. Maybe you feel that. And I think if you're feeling that, that is a feeling that so many in our world right now are feeling. All of those things that we've been sold as like obvious and taken for granted, we're now seeing don't actually live up to what they promise. And we're seeing it all over the world. One example just uh, off the top of my head that I can think of, there's a lady named uh, Louise Perry. And she's written a book, and I sort of off the top of my head, because um, I did write it down, <laughs> uh, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Now that sounds like a book that somebody in a really stuffy church would write, doesn't it? Except she's not a follower of Jesus at all. In fact, she would consider herself a radical feminist. And she's written this book saying, all of these things we were sold are wrong. In fact, they don't liberate women. They, they lock women into systems of abuse and, and hurt and negligence and all of these things. And, and guys, this is what I'm saying. I think we live in a world that is starting to recognize that all of these systems we've been given are failing, but we don't yet have anything set up. As Christians, do we have anything to offer them? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And this is where I think what Paul says is so incredible. He reminds us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to set our sights on heaven, that actually there is something so much better than all of those things we're beginning to recognize are actually rubbish, but we still chase anyway, that there's something better, that if we would just lock our eyes on it, if we would set our eyes on it, change our direction, change our focus, a lot of the hurt that we cause other people, a lot of the hurt that we experience, we might be able to get rid of, we might be able to enjoy God. What if we could enjoy God? What if we could enjoy knowing our creator? Guys, this is what's on offer. This is why I'm like, I'm really excited that I got this, I got to preach this passage because I think it is one of those where the good news of the gospel encompasses everything. We tend to focus on that one little bit that says, Jesus died for my sins. 100% true, incredibly important because if that didn't happen, then obviously we're all kind of screwed. Um, can I say that? I did. Anyway, um, right? But there's more. Because we're not just saved from something. We're saved into something and with someone, right? Jesus didn't just come to save us and walk away. Jesus came to bring us into relationship with him. So let's unpack this, all right? Ten minutes in, we got through the introduction. <laughs> No, we're, we're all right. We're going to fly through this, okay? So how we live in this world matters. And I think what Paul is going to tell us to do, and what I think is important, is that we look back at the advice of Paul, what he's written in Colossians, and we see that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and make him the center and ultimate authority of our lives. And when we do that, 
See, we're told to rebel against authority constantly, aren't we? Like, go against whatever the, the man says. But what if there was a man? Sorry, that's going to get really corny really fast. I'll just stop there. What if we actually submitted our lives to God? We gave our lives to God. What if it's possible that by giving my life to God in submission to him as Lord, that it would actually bring the freedom that I desire? All right? So as I said, Paul says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the reality of heaven where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. So here's what I want to talk about. The realities of heaven. Set your sights on the realities of heaven. What are these realities that Paul is, is getting at here? I think there's three of them. We're going to look at three of them. All right? So today I'm preaching a, a, a standard logical sermon here. Right? Three points, okay? So here's the first reality that I think we see. So he says, set your sights on the reality of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Here's the first reality. Heaven is where Jesus is. Is that, is that come up? Nope, nope. All right, well, there you go. What? I have like five slides, guys. <laughs> what is wrong with me? It doesn't matter. There could be one slide and I'd find a way to mess it up. All right? So the first reality is this. Heaven is where Jesus is and where he is sitting on the throne. All right? Heaven is where Jesus is and where he is sitting on the throne. And I think that's important to note. It's where Jesus is. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Okay? And the picture is not heaven forever being somewhere up there. But the picture we see in the Bible is actually heaven descending onto earth and Jesus sitting on the throne here and of renewed creation where all is back to the way it was supposed to be. All right, so the reality, this reality that Jesus is sitting on the throne, I think let's just recognize, is sometimes hard to see in our world. Right? We can look at what's happening in, in Ukraine or in Ethiopia or you know, uh, looking at possible war in Taiwan or all these sorts of things, right? I mean, like, when you look at the global situation that we live in, riots and, and you know, protests in Brazil and all, all these kinds of, whatever, like, when you look all around the world, it can be hard to see. But Paul asks us to imagine this, that Jesus is actually on the throne, that Jesus is actually in control. And this is one of the really big main themes of Colossians, right? You want to read about like, Colossians chapter 1? Colossians chapter 2, like especially chapter 1, is all about, and into Colossians 2, how Jesus has defeated the powers of this world of sin and death on the cross. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, Paul says, You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Now get this, here's what he says. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus at the cross is not just dying for our sins. He is winning a victory over sin and over death and over the powers of this world. And because he has won that victory, because he has conquered death, 
He now sits, what Paul says, he sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. Jesus has disarmed the powers of the world and won the victory over them. And Paul is reminding us where Jesus won the victory, but he is also reminding us that the victory has culminated with Jesus sitting down on the throne. This picture of sitting down gives us this picture of a finished work, right? When God created the earth in six days, on the seventh day, he sat down and he rested. Jesus has finished the work and he has sat down. He has defeated them. But one day he will return and defeat it once, for all, once and for all. And so I think it's important that we don't just look to the cross, but we also look to the throne. Because in a world of a messy world, where even in our Western world, where, you know, and those of us living in Ireland, where we're, you know, we're pretty much sheltered uh, for the most part from, you know, I don't know, genocide, things like that. Like, that's not something I worry about on a daily basis or, or anything like that. There are still people that are pretty lousy and, and can be pretty awful, right? And sometimes we need that reminder that Jesus is on the throne that he is ruling and that he will return and set all things right. I've heard it said um, to kind of think of this idea of, of Jesus winning the victory, but then returning to set all things right once, once and for all in, in a kind of a metaphor of, of World War II. I think it's helpful. I've used it before. I'll use it again because you probably don't remember. All right. When the Allies invaded Normandy, D-Day, June 6th, 1944. Happens to be my birthday. Not 1944, but June 6th. Um, right? So when they invaded, they set forth a chain reaction, a chain of events that, had that basically became inevitable at that point. The Germans would be defeated. When they won that decisive victory in Normandy, when they fought through the, the art, you know, through <laughs> on, on, into France, it started a chain of events that were now inevitable. Right, so D-Day was the decisive event that ended up leading to VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. But there was a gap in between that still involved a lot of fighting, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. Okay, and I think it's important. We see the kingdom like that. We see what Jesus has done like that. He has essentially won the victory. They have been conquered. It's just a matter of them like retreating slowly back until Jesus one day comes back, defeats them once and for all, and we celebrate all right? So don't just look to the cross. Look to the throne too. Think about the things of heaven, Paul says, not the things of earth. And when Paul uses this phrase, he really means like things counter to the kingdom. It's not like everything on earth is like bad, okay? That's not a biblical way of looking at the world, that everything in the world is just bad and terrible and like, you know, we need to forsake everything and move out into the desert or something like that. Okay, that's, that's not what Paul is getting at here. When he says forsake the things of the world, it is the things of like the things that we are tempted to look to and put ultimate value and worth in. Those things no longer hold, the, hold that for us anymore. They are things to be maybe enjoyed, right? I talked about a couple of weeks ago in, in Ephesians, like, you know, that, that there are good things in this world that we can enjoy and appreciate, but they are not ultimate things. And, and he's going to go on and say, here are some things that you should forsake, right? We read that. We read that a few verses, right? That there are things that we really should forsake. And we'll come back to that. 
But um, when, when Paul uses this idea of, of, uh, of thinking of things of heaven and not of, of earth, he's talking about things that are counter to the kingdom of God. And that way, these things of the earth are the things that begin at Genesis 3, when sin enters the world and the world no longer functions the way God intended it to be. And so the kingdom of our God in Christ bids us to give our allegiance to him, to live out the reality and the ways of the true king. All right, so the fact that Jesus is on his throne is a claim that he is the true and one king worthy of our allegiance, that our allegiance does not belong anywhere else but but with Jesus that our allegiance is to God. And so if Paul feels he needs to say that we are to set our sights on the realities of heaven, it's because there are competing false promises and visions of life they already brought up. The way Paul, I like the way the English Standard Version says this, like it's, he, it says, um, think about the things of heaven, not the things that are on earth. So in other words, we are to set our eyes, fix our gaze on Jesus. And I mentioned this before, but the average Colossian, okay? The average person. So here's, here's a little bit about Colossae, okay? Colossae at one point was a really important city, okay? Really important. It was one of the major trade cities. It was on a trade route. It was one of the major cities of that part of what is now Turkey, um, it's not far from Ephesus, not terribly far from Ephesus, okay? And, and at one point then, it lost, its, it lost its importance. It wasn't important anymore. However, all the leftovers were still there of, you know, a city that was once in- incredibly important. So for the average Colossian who walked down the street, as they walked through the marketplace, they would walk past temples to Artemis, temples to Zeus, temples to Dionysius, temples to Isis, and to the emperor, and many others. They'd walk past all of this stuff, competing for their allegiance. The Colossian Christians would be tempted to see Jesus, I think similarly maybe to how you and I are tempted, as just another option among many. But Paul tells us that's not the way things are. What Paul is getting at here is he is telling these Colossians that are tempted to look at Jesus as one option among many, that Jesus is supreme that Christ is supreme over all creation, that no other God or thing or system or power we could worship compares. They are created. He is the creator. And so how we think becomes really, really important here, right? So he says, since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven. How we think is shaped, and we've talked about this, I think, ad nauseum in church, but I'm going to say it again. How we think is primarily shaped by our desires, the things that we love. Okay? How we think is shaped by our desires and our desires and our thoughts then shape how we live. Okay? If our lives are shaped primarily by desires fed to us by the world, 
guess what we're going to look like? Okay? If the things that we think about, if the things that we meditate on, if the things that we read, if the things that we pay attention to are primarily just the things of this world, guess what you're going to look like? It should be no surprise that you don't look any different than the people around you. In no way do you look different. That you do all the same things. That you, you buy, you know, like you live for all the same things. Your primary, you know, your primary worth and, 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 you know, is, is built up in all the same things. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. And this is why Paul says to set our minds on the things of heaven. If our lives are reformed instead by the realities of the kingdom of Jesus, then guess what our lives are going to begin to look like? I think this is what Paul is getting at. How we live our lives is a signpost to what we actually look to for salvation. To what we actually love. And that can be scary. (laughs) But the actions and the things that we do, our lives bear out the reality of what we actually love. And I think more often than not, what we find out is we actually love ourselves more than we love other people. We love ourselves more than we love God. That we love our, our desires and our pleasures and our, you know, all these other things. And everybody else, at the end of the day, when it comes down to what I want versus what is best, I will do what I want. I think that is often the reality of our lives. I think even Paul felt that to a certain degree. We could argue over Romans 7 and what exactly Paul means there, but I think, if, if nothing else, I think we can at least relate to that fact that so often people end up collateral damage in our lives when something I want competes with what somebody else needs. And that's when we look like the world. Because that's exactly what the world teaches us to do. We don't look like Jesus because that's not what Jesus was like, was it? At the end of the day, what Jesus was like is what when he wanted, Father, not my will, but yours be done, he still did what was best. He said, that's fine, not my will, but yours be done. If you could take this away, God, please, that would be great, but not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross. He sacrificed everything for you and for me. The incarnation. I mean, my goodness. We see over and over in the life of Jesus what it looks like to live as a real human. To love others more than we love ourselves. And so, how we live our lives becomes a signpost to what we actually love. To what we actually care about. So Paul goes on to contrast the two kingdoms. What are the things of the world and what are the things of heaven? Right, that's what he's going to do. After verse 4, right, he's um, starting in verse 5, he's going to start talking about what are the earthly things, what are some of the earthly things. And this is not an exhaustive list. I'll bet we could come up with more, and Paul elsewhere is going to come up with other things. Right, but this is a fairly good list of of the things uh, that he says um, are earthly things. This is the way of conflict, of violence, of use and abuse and fractured relationships. And he says, put those to death. Get them out of your life because they don't bring life. We so often, over and over, fall for the lie that these things bring life. And Paul says, no, put them to death. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, if you want to experience relationship with God, put these things to death. 
Easier said than done, I know. <laughs> Sinful, earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with them. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy. And guys, we could unpack all of those and ask how each one of those things is actually destructive. How each one of those things is actually using and abusing other people. How each one of those things is actually incredibly selfish. But we don't have time. You want to do that afterwards? By all means, we can, we can sit down and do that. But then he goes on to talk about the heavenly things. And these are things that are spiritually wise. These are things that bring life. These are things that bring life to relationships. These are things of humility and love and harmony. These, this is what it looks like to love like Jesus. And what Paul is saying is set your mind on heaven so that you can live like Jesus. What verse 10, like let's come back to that. I love the way the New Living Translation translates verse 10. This is awesome because it, like, it goes along. You know, we always say in church, right, that we want to know Jesus, be like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did, right? Where would we ever find something like that in Scripture? <clears throat> well, glad you asked. Verse 10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. That's what we're called to, guys. That's the life that we're called to. That is real life. That is really living. Focus on the heavenly things. Look to Jesus. Get to know him and be like him. All right, moving on because we need to get to the second point here. Okay, it is there. All right, good. Submission to the powers is essentially dehumanizing. So if real life is found in living for Jesus, then doing the opposite of living for the world is actually dehumanizing. We tend to think living in submission to somebody else or not, you know, living our own, not being our own individual snowflake. And I'm not saying that in the sort of, you know what I mean, like how people use that derogatorily. I'm just saying that this idea of being unique and my own perfect self and my own individual self, and I am special and I'm amazing. And yes, you are, but when taken to the extreme, it becomes dehumanizing. Instead of living for other people, I live for myself. Instead of doing all these things, you know, it's all about self-expression and experience. And I end up actually becoming less human. And this is what I love about the gospel, that the gospel says that when I submit my life to Jesus, I actually become like him. I become more human. And Paul is going to say that we share in all of his glory that we will share in all of his glory, that we one day will be fully like him. But even in the here and now, we get to experience a little bit of what it's like to be like Jesus, right? As we give our lives to him, as we live within the boundaries that Jesus has set and said, this is what life really looks like. Okay, so submission to the powers is essentially dehumanizing. So Paul says, for you died to this life. We died to this life. And so we put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within us. Paul in chapter 2, previously in verses 8 to 9, says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives the fullness of God in human body. When we put our hope in the cultural promises of a utopian future where everything is just going to keep getting better and better and better and better, 
through individual freedom or whatever. We're building our house on the sand. And so I think so much of the anxiety that we experience to a great deal is related to the amount in which we have bought into the lies of this world and found them wanting. We forget the profound truth that Augustine says in his Confessions, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And if you're interested in finding that quote, it's on like the first page of the book, so you don't even have to go very far. All right? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And so, we see that our real life then, we've died to this life, and our real life is hidden with Christ in God, which brings us to our final reality, and that's this. The life you were made for, truest life, is only found in Christ. And I think I've probably said that a good few times now at this point, so I won't labor the point too much. But here's the thing Paul says in verse 3, that we have died to this life. But what does he say in verse 1? Since you have been raised to new life. So here's the thing. We are not just dying to something. Okay, we're not just saying, you know, again, we're not just dying to our old life, but we receive a new life. One that Paul seems to think, and I agree with him, is much, much better. It's like, it's not even a good, it's like the worst deal in history. But the best deal in history. Do you know what I'm saying? All right? Like, it's, it's one of those things where, like, if, from, like, God's perspective, you know, if this were, like, trading cards or something, it'd be a really bad deal. But, like, for you, like, you're getting a great deal. Like, you know, you're, like, you're getting rid of this old life that's no good. It's rubbish. It's like, a car, like pushing a car into a, you know, into, a, into a shop, like it barely runs, and then driving out with a Ferrari and not having to pay anything. Like, that's like the comparison here. It's like, it's not even a comparison. And that new life begins now. Because Paul says, since you have been raised to new life, new life begins now. And this, I think, is, is the beauty of the gospel. It's like that new life begins now. Because you can begin to taste and see that the Lord is good now. It's not like we have to wait till someday I die and I get my wings and sit on a cloud and play a harp. Like, I've watched too many cartoons. Right? Like, that's not like, it's like you can start to taste it now. Will it be here in its fullness? No. Okay? No. Our world is still screwed up. Our world is still messed up. But we can begin to taste that and see that the Lord is good even now. We can begin to experience the new life, the life and life to the full, or life abundantly, as Jesus says in John 10, 10. Right? We can begin to experience that even now. But it finds its fullness and completion in the future when Jesus returns to earth. When he returns, Paul says in verse 4, we will share in all his glory. In other words, we will be made fully like Christ. Imagine that, guys. We looked at Jesus and we, I don't know about you. You read about Jesus, like I, like I read about Jesus, I find him pretty compelling. I'm like, wow, that guy's amazing. What does Paul say? 
that when Jesus comes in his fullness, we will be made like him in all his glory. You will share in all his glory. Guys, we will someday be like Jesus. That's amazing. I don't know about you. That gets me excited. I'm not that, I mean, I hope I'm more like Jesus than I was like last year, but like, I'm not even close to being Jesus at this point. I think you all know that fairly well. You know, I, I, I'm nowhere near being Jesus. <laughs> but someday, I will be. And that's pretty cool. I'll be as loving as Jesus, as patient as Jesus, as kind as Jesus. And it won't be because I've worked so hard and become so good. No, it's because of what Jesus has done. And so, here's where I conclude. I, f- I feel it. I know, it's been a while. He's, he's done great. He's done great. All right? Uh, here's the thing. And this, I think, this is something that just like, when I, when I dwell on this, when I think about this, Right? The eternal perspective of saying, I'm living for something that is bigger than myself. I'm living for something not just in the here and now, that I'm not expecting what, well, you know, what Zygmunt Bauman has said, um, you know, that like uh, happiness in this earthly life. Here's the thing I think it puts all of this in perspective for me. In a year or two from the time Paul wrote the letter of Colossians, there was an incredibly huge earthquake that hit that area. Colossae was destroyed. Paul is writing a letter to a group of people that are either going to be dead or scattered really soon. Because we don't know what a year holds from now. We don't know what two years holds from now. I, I don't know what five minutes from now holds, other than hopefully the sermon is done. <laughs> right? Think about that. Let that put that into perspective. Because you live for this life and this life only. A year from now, two years from now, you could be dead. I could be dead. We could all be dead. I don't know. Like, what an exciting end to the sermon, right? But I think it's, that's the reality. We could all be scattered. Eventually, Colossae would be rebuilt. And then it would be destroyed again. But, like, you know, it was a while. Most of these people, they scattered to Laodicea, they, they scattered to Hierapolis or Ephesus or different places in the area, maybe didn't even see each other anymore. Or, like I said, they weren't, they weren't alive anymore. We don't know how much time we have in our families. We don't know how much time we have in our communities, in our cities, in our church. And so we can cling to the empty promises of this world, the plastic promises of this world, thinking that they're going to fulfill my life. Or we can cling to the life-giving promises of Christ here and now, and begin to experience the new life that you and I are offered. And live out of, out of Jesus' kingdom in this world with the time that we have. And you know what? I don't think we'll ever look back on our lives if we live for Jesus and his kingdom. I don't think we'll ever look back, you know, say we have another 60, 70 years. I don't think we'll ever look back and go, you know what? I really wish I had done some more shopping. You know, if I only had to give in a few more hours of my time to Amazon. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, so let's start living for that kingdom now. Let's start experiencing that 
now. All right, that's, that's my encouragement to you. And I know, again, that's a bit of a depressing end, sort of. But to say that, guys, when you put it in perspective, this is something eternal. Look to heaven. Set your sights on heaven. Focus on heaven. Not on the things of this earth. Because all that will come crashing down one day very quickly. But the things of eternity, when we set our, mind, our eyes on heaven, when we set our eyes on the fact that Jesus is on the throne, when we set our eyes on the fact that, that only Jesus gives real life, when we set our eyes on the fact that we were made for truest life in Christ, it puts things in perspective. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, that you have given us new life. That in you, God, is available, real life is available. God, that you love us, that you care for us. God, that is incredible. Who are we that you are mindful of us? It almost seems crazy to think that you are mindful of us, that you love us. You sent Jesus to be our rescuer, to give us victory over the slavery of sin so that we could be brought into new life with you. Lord, may we live out that new life. May we set our eyes on heaven and think about these things. May our eyes always be fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.